It may well be that I will start these episodes regularly with an apology. And today's apology is that despite my best efforts at dimming this room, um, there's just a, a structural disadvantage, if you will, at living at the top floor of a building. When you're surrounded by a power distribution building and a church, which in, in Manhattan, I think, is it guarantees you light, which is a big advantage when you're looking at a place to rent. Um, it's the sixth floor, and in reality, it's the fifth floor. And uh, there's just so much light in this apartment. So when you look at these things and you say yes, it's part of the sort of the uh, temptation is that you get to see, you get to experience light in Manhattan. And when you do this, without knowing that you're going to be doing a podcast during COVID-19 and sort of having to manage the light becomes a disadvantage. And I've been sort of uh, figuring out ways to avoid light by either recording late at night, which is where most of these sort of these uh, type of episodes are, are released, or trying to just block out the light. And this is my first successful attempt, I hope, at not having glare. The Samir Asir tribute episode, I think, uh, I looked like a sort of a, a haunting uh, horror image at some point, and I, I apologize for anyone that sort of watched me sort of glowing too, too bright or disappearing to the light in the background. Anyway, so I, I, that's my official apology today. The uh, the other thing that I should note from now is um, this is going to be maybe perhaps a bit of a rant. Um, I'll structure it in a way that that makes sense. But uh, so much happened in such a short period of time that's worth talking about. And at the same time, there's so much disappointment and frustration that, uh, I mean, it's not like a... In my opinion, there's only one thing worth celebrating right now. And that's where I think uh, I'll, I'll take this episode in that direction. And I'll, I'll emphasize this point because it is an important point. But the downside or the disadvantages of, of what we're seeing should be highlighted as well. Um, I vividly remember, as do most people who grew up in Beirut, particularly in the 1990s, um, I remember very clearly the suffocation, the the real hesitation at even uh, saying certain names or certain countries or certain leaders and being afraid that people were listening, people were watching, and you would always think, not twice, you would think many times, before referencing particular people, and now say them sort of openly. You can say Assad, you can say Jamil Sayyid, you can say um, Hassan Nasrallah, you can say anyone. You know, from the war years, there's no fear. You can say Jmail, Jaja, you can say Jumblat, you can say pretty much anyone you want. Um, even the ones that were not known to sort of, uh, you know, 
be intimidated, let's say, or insecure, and arrest people for talking. I mean, you 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 could always say Haridi, but you would always maybe you would think you know who's listening and who's in the room, and and you didn't want to offend, largely for wrong reasons. I think this is not sort of courtesy. This was more you didn't want to be labeled anything, and then sort of have consequences later. But the truth is today. You can pretty much say any name. And uh, this includes Michel Aoun. And the, the man is famous for, I think, huge mistakes. Um, we don't need to get into those for this episode. But uh, one needs to be extremely insecure and extremely... Uh, extremely incompetent to make it a policy to chase down Instagram voices or Instagram influencers or just average people on Instagram raging out of frustration and deep deep anger at the current situation you don't go chasing down these people you simply don't do it and um, it just, uh, if you do go down that path today, there are consequences. And I think people have permanently broken the barrier of fear. And that's a good thing. That is a huge accomplishment. And for that matter, it's not just in Lebanon, it's more or less in the region. More or less. And there are setbacks things don't always move forward all the time there are bad trends as well but you can say things knowing that if there are consequences enough people are going to be by your side to help you get out and you know what it wasn't the case before and um, I think it speaks so much to the era that we're going through that if somebody in a car gets online, goes on Instagram, Michel, Michel Chamon, I think, Michel Chamon, and, um, God, could the name be any closer, you know? And he rages against the machine. <laughs> I don't know if that phrase is appropriate here, but he does. He rages against the machine. The machine calls him in, questions him for six hours, and tells him to delete the post and go home, sign a pledge apologize more or less regret what you did he can do all these things and it doesn't matter that's the beauty of what we're experiencing that by the time they get to him on his phone entering instagram and deleting a post you know tens of thousands if not more have seen it probably more if you instagram it could be it could be more people saw it in those six hours than uh, than when he actually posted it, and it it's gone. I mean, it's out in the open. People are sharing it. People are emphasizing the point that you can't you can't stop this, and that's a very positive trend. I got to see that video through other people's feeds. I think most people saw those videos when it was shared by other people, and he's uh, he's out. And he's not out because people 
are cautiously expressing concern that the president of the republic is chasing down people who uh, who quote quote insult him i don't know if that rant was actually an insult per se but let's just say it was you know what let's say it's the loosest definition of what an insult is say expressing disdain um it's it's really it's powerful that people did not go on instagram to share their 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 sort of uh their extreme disdain with what's going on they went to the station where he was being held they expressed themselves on the street they blocked the highway they did everything you would want the public to do to say this is intolerable and they did it and they did it loud and clear and that kind of pressure is born i think out of overcoming fear simply not afraid anymore i don't like to see fighting i don't like to see scuffles for that matter i don't even like to see tires burning or blocking a highway where it's very tense and and people can can get violent at the same time it is such a good thing to see people rushing to the support of a man taken in for questioning over an instagram rant so that's a very positive development and it's not that long ago i mean it's maybe 16 years 15 years i remember as an aub student just you know hearing conversations or going into shops on bliss street and people would talk about students or for that matter shopkeepers who would display the lebanese flag it could be in in penrose it could be in dorms a student would sort of put the flag on the window and people were talking that this was so risky then you'd have these oddballs that these sort of familiar degenerate mukhabarat style people that would go around asking you know who's doing that who's doing that maybe sort of pressure get that flag off take it down I mean to think of that today is sort of impossible so you know not too long ago you would even be afraid to a point of putting the Lebanese flag out and saying we're against Syria being in Lebanon and against the Syrian regime's indirect occupation of Lebanon and just by displaying your country's flag it was threatening enough that people would uh, would hesitate but by 2005 just can't stop it you have a woman kindal khatib who is expressing herself and she's also taken in with her brother you have many journalists who have been summoned you have many that have been questioned for a few hours and let go but it's just the the phone calls the regular interference um it's meant to silence and it's not working it's not working so that's a very good development everything else is not working as well which is horrible 
I, um, I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not fluent with these names, but I, uh, I mean, I assume somebody like Henri Shaul, who maybe uh, is fed up with being part of the negotiations team, and uh, he resigns. And he expresses his reasons for resigning, and it's a form of protest. You need honorable, respectable figures to try to do their best. And this was pro bono. This was sort of out of love of country. And the country, maybe that's not the right word here, the individuals that occupy positions of power in the country today are uninterested in fixing things or fixing things in a way that makes sense. Maybe they're interested in just delaying and delaying and delaying and waiting for things to change and waiting for protesters to go home, waiting for maybe an external country to come to the rescue, maybe. Um, but that waiting and waiting has led to the most unstable chapter in recent Lebanese history. Unstable is probably a nice way of saying it. The most, um, the most painful chapter in modern Lebanese history, where everyone is suffering, everyone to various degrees, is uh, is going through a very very difficult period. Um, and that resignation letter, I think, uh, it it he said it more or less straightforwardly. He said, "There's just serious reluctance at reform." There's genuine reluctance at reform. So basically, you can work your work your ass off at trying to do the right thing, and you still have everyone, the people that you're trying to get to a better place, saying we're we're not on board. You have people running to. Sarraf cash cash exchange booths trying to make extra money out of desperation. I mean, you buy the lira at a certain rate, you sell it at a certain rate. And if you're lucky, you make a thousand lira per dollar, maybe more. Um, and you can only withdraw $200 anyway. You can only exchange 200 So it's really just like making ends meet at the bare, bare minimum. And it's 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 a black market economy. That's not how you. That's not how you. That's not how you move forward. That's the plunge into into chaos. And those scenes are horrible. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people lining up, trying to have just enough dollar to make just enough lira to get by day to day. While it's very good that people are able to chant their heart out and vent their frustrations on the street or online. Um, I think that is overshadowed by, uh, by regime reluctance and the worst regime supporter possible. And uh, you have people being summoned to Babda to try to get along. 
Baabda has been a very unimpressive palace since since the civil war and uh you have now the the man who did all he could to return to Baabda while the country burns in his presence to in his later years when he may not be fully aware of what's going on is uh just summoning people back up to to try to work it out i mean automatically you have these side meetings you have sectarianism in its ugliest way it's not the right sunni representation it's not the right any representation it doesn't have the confessional support we need all i mean everything in it everything is just so old and and reminds me of just the years that we thought we'd emerge from it's the early 1990s i always thought that as a as an adolescent growing up in beirut that transition was from bad to better not from bad to worse and then on it accidentally you have stretches of okay relatively okay economy and maybe some tourism and you can forget to maybe uh, you can forget for a few months that you're living in a country that's ungovernable and then it comes and slaps you in the face and here it is right now protesters are unable to wield political authority the political establishment is un- unable to do anything else and the defenders of the regime hasbullah it's the weaponized defense strategy of the regime today what a what a what a pathetic fate to the lebanese state that its defender perverts the system plunders the system pushes the system into an absurd place defies the system says we're better than the system we can defend the state better than the state we can do everything better and uh if you disagree will tolerate a low level of disagreement if you work towards achieving a sovereign state will eliminate you will deny it to the end of time but will will destroy you literally will blow you up let alone what happened to Syria what happened to Lebanon and they're the ones standing up for the regime today whatever that is babda is meant to be the place where you fix problems you don't make problems worse and leadership in babda i mean if if there was any moment since the syrians left in 2005 forget 1990 to 2005 forget the characters that were in charge then forget lahoud forget hrawi you know what forget everyone forget everyone since the civil war since the syrians left so 
since we've had a nominally independent state, nominally, it's not independent. There's only one time that I think Babda perhaps, perhaps tried, not succeeded, but tried to do the right thing. That was in 2012. And that's long forgotten Babda declaration. And that was designed to prevent what we see now. They weren't talking about finance. They weren't talking about corruption or economics. That's true. They were not talking about accountability, the way it's being expressed or the demands are being expressed. All that is true. But they were talking about getting the elephant in the room, which is Hezbollah, the captain of the sinking ship, to distance itself from Syria's revolt turned war not be a part of that war and it's bad enough that this is a sub-state group that's unwilling to adhere to the norms of statehood in Lebanon it'll get worse the more they're involved in Syria or the region and uh, if there was a graph you could almost you know you could point to where the tipping point was in my conversations in recent episodes it's sort of yeah it's 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 becoming clearer that their involvement there helped push didn't it's not the one reason but it's a big reason why we're in a mess today that we can't get out of and uh i don't particularly care for sensitivity I don't think uh, the street should be told what's in their best interest, which ideas are more are more important to champion out of sensitivity or out of maybe out of just sheer reluctance at talking about their weapons. But um, I think the Lebanese street that I know, the one that I've always identified with, the one that I believed in and I still do, uh, that street can discuss whatever the hell it wants and um, if they want to talk about a sub-state group's weapons and economic crises and financial disasters and transparency and all of the above they have the right to they have every right to talk about other issues too they have every right to talk about weapons they have every right to talk about sub-state group dislodging the, the potential of Lebanon killing the potential of Lebanon and if we're meant to break out of our fear and you know that freedom that many of us fought for some died for uh that issue needs to be discussed and it should be shouted from the top of lungs and anyone anyone who sees the biggest problem facing lebanon today that's my rant. And I want to end this episode with, um, with a piece that my father wrote in his blog. And this is going back to October 2012. I'm going to read a part of it, the parts that I think are, are important even, even today. So it's called The Babda Declaration Revisited. On June 25, 2012, the Dialogue Committee in Babda issued a joint document 
which came to be known as the Baabda Declaration. Among other things, and most importantly, the Declaration stated that, and I am paraphrasing, 1. While various Lebanese parties have the right to express diverse political positions and sympathies on Syria, they will refrain from allowing Lebanon's territory or borders to be used for any military purposes. 2. The Lebanese state and all Lebanese parties commit to shield Lebanon and prevent it from being used as a theater for regional or international conflicts, alliances, or agendas. The Baabda Declaration was signed by all parties, including Hezbollah, and hailed as a historic agreement that had the status of a national covenant. It was supposed to be a cornerstone of a national strategy to protect Lebanon, now and in the future, and it was logical for the declaration to be issued by the Dialogue Committee since the committee's mandate was to develop, quote, a national strategy to protect Lebanon and defend it, end quote. The President's national defense strategy stopped short of asking Hezbollah to agree to a concrete plan to end its autonomous, militarized, and unconstitutional status and accept the state's monopoly over arms. Clearly, anything less than that would be inconsistent with the Constitution and with state sovereignty. Perhaps the President felt that a more limited goal would be more realistic. But the President's proposal did imply that Hezbollah should sever its strategic military alliance with Iran and remove itself, and therefore Lebanon, from Iran's defense strategy. Unfortunately, but predictably, Hezbollah's actions and positions, as well as statements by high Iranian officials, have poured cold water on the president's defense strategy proposals, as well as on the Baabda principles. Evidence? High Iranian officials have continued to declare Lebanon as part of Iran's strategic defense. This flies in the face of the Baabda Declaration, which in effect says Lebanon's defense strategy requires that Lebanon cease to be part of Iran's defense strategy. Hezbollah's silence on those official Iranian declarations cannot be interpreted in Lebanon and the world, except as agreement with their Iranian allies. In spite of irrefutable evidence of an attempt by the Syrian regime to assassinate Lebanese officials and civilians and trigger a conflict in Lebanon, the Mamluk Smeha affair, Hezbollah has also remained silent, creating a perception of acquiescence to a blatant act of aggression on the Lebanese people and to the Syrian regime's attempt to widen the conflict in Syria to encompass Lebanon. Hezbollah has reacted violently to the March 14 suggestion that the Lebanese army could seek assistance from the UN to strengthen its ability to control the border with Syria and prevent all illegal flow in either direction. This was initially interpreted in relation to Hezbollah's interest in keeping the border open for its own armed supplies from Iran and Syria. Recent developments suggest that they want the border to remain sufficiently open to facilitate the flow of Hezbollah's assistance to the Syrian regime. Not a very encouraging picture. But does this mean that the president should fold the Baabda Declaration and stop championing the goal of shielding Lebanon from Syria's domestic conflict and from Iran's defense or offense strategy? Absolutely not. That is his duty as president. And he should continue to reaffirm the principles of the Baabda Declaration. 
even if Hezbollah continues to breach them. I know that it's a different president today, and I know the situation has changed, in some ways fundamental, in some ways not. You have people on the streets not tolerating the status quo. You also have a palace in the hills east of Beirut that is unwilling to recognize its own declaration eight years ago. And uh, there is one party in particular that uh, has made it very clear that they are unwilling to negotiate, unwilling to compromise, and they prefer chanting obnoxious uh, ideas like looking to China. Lebanon doesn't have to look in one direction. It can look in any direction. Any direction that suits Lebanon's interests, not a paramilitary group's defense strategy, and particularly not Iran's regime. And that's the situation we're in today. Invite anyone you want to Babda. Have as many meetings as you'd like. But stand up for a declaration your palace signed eight years ago. Don't go around chasing down Instagram users for expressing their rage at what's happened to Lebanon. Thank you.